Let's stand together one more time. We're going to pray over the message tonight. We're getting into the actual Sermon on the Mount, although it really began with the Beatitudes, but now we're going to go into uh, the rest of it, and it is really, really uh, powerful. This is God's Word we're getting into, and so I want us to read it like we always do, and then we're going to pray. Sermon on the Mount, greatest sermon ever preached. So I want you to read it out loud with me, if, if you don't mind. Let's just read it. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh Uh-oh, that sounds strong. Now it gets stronger. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause is in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, see what y'all did with that word. Some of you sound like marbles. Okay, it's everybody say raka. Shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Whoa. Strong stuff. Amen. Thank you, Father, for your word tonight. We know this is your word. Jesus, you gave that to us. So now open our eyes and ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying through this word and what you spoke to us, Lord, for life and living. In Jesus' name, amen. Say with me, the word is inspired. Amen. You can be seated. God bless you. All right. Let's talk about this uh, portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, It's very, very strong. And um, Jesus delivers this unmatched and greatest sermon ever preached uh, in a series of topics or themes. If If you read the whole Sermon on the Mount with a pen, you can divide uh, the whole Sermon on the Mount, three chapters, into themes or topics. He, he usually spends several verses on one topic, prayer, uh, unforgiveness, uh, you know, murder, um, whatever it is that he's dealing with, fasting, whatever it is that Jesus deals with, he deals with it in, in topics or themes, one right after another after another. And he manages to cover most critical issues of life in this one sitting. 
That's what amazes me. The Lord sits down and delivers this incredible word, sermon, whatever you want to call it. It's just amazing. No notes, no nothing. Just says it. Of course, that's because he was God. Amen? Now, first he tells us, his followers and disciples, who we are and our function on earth. So he answers the question here, one of the big ones, who am I and why am I here? Who am I? Jesus said, you are. You are. And when he said you are, he, he's, identify, he's, he's identifying us. He's telling us who we are. You know, people spend their whole lives, well, I'm searching for myself. I'm searching for the real me. Well, quit searching and let the Lord define you. I'm very, very, very careful as to who I allow to define me. Because somebody is trying to define everybody to them. All right? You are this, you are that, you're not this, you're not that. That is just a part of life. And if you don't let God define you, someone will. Someone or something will. Starting from when you're a little kid, there's somebody defining you. Of course, your parents, but teachers, experiences, good and bad, all kinds of things come along to define us, and we come to believe certain things about ourselves. And I have come to really understand it's crucial what I believe about me, who I am. Who has defined me? Who has defined you? Who's defining you right now? Because our culture is working overtime to define you. All right? So here's Jesus, and he says, let me tell you who you are in me. He says, first of all, you're the salt of the earth. You are. Everybody say, I am. Okay? So he says, you are. You're what? You're salt. Now, he's not picturing here uh, salt like in a salt shaker that, that is put on meat or something to season it. That's, that's really not what is foremost in his mind. There were no refrigerators in Jesus' day. There, there was no ice unless it was snow, something like that, wintertime. But there was no refrigerators, no way to keep meat from decay. That is, freezing it. The only way you could keep meat from decay was salt. You are the salt. That's what he was thinking of. I'm not putting you into the world to season it as much as I am putting you into the world to keep it from decay. We are, as the church, called to play a part in keeping our culture from rot and decay. Now, let me ask you a question. Is our culture rotting and decaying? Okay, now here's what that tells me. Um, at least part of the problem has been an ineffective church, not teaching the word anymore, not standing with scripture, not preaching Christ, not being true to what is written, but caving into the culture, trying to get along with the culture, shaking hands with the culture so that we'll be liked by the culture, but God never called us to be liked. He called us to influence. 
he called us to be agents of change. He called us to keep our culture from rotting. Because as the church pulls back, you'll note, if the church gets weak, the culture goes down. So when first century people caught a fish or killed an animal to eat, the first thing they did was they covered it in salt. And that's the only way they kept it from decay. So Jesus says, now if you as the salt, you're my kingdom salt, You're to be salted with the truth of God, the love of God, the reality of God, the message of God. You're to be seasoned. You're you're, you're to, to be that kind of salt. To be salty is to walk in the love of God, the truth of God, and spread that, say that, tell it, stand for it. He says, but if you lose your flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled by men. Have you noticed that when the church compromises, it becomes like the world, the world grows to despise it, tramples it, no longer listens to it, uh, doesn't respect it? It might amaze you to know that even though the world hates the message of Christ, when you stand tall for him deep down, they respect your willingness to take a stand. And they can tell if you're cowering, uh, pulling back, diluting, neutralizing yourself because you're afraid of what they're going to say. Come out of the closet. Everything else is. Amen? And have you noticed those that are coming out for abject sin are doing it with pride? with boldness, with brazenness, with no fear at all of what you or I think about it? That's the way the church is supposed to be with the message of Christ. So when the church starts looking, acting, and thinking like the world we're supposed to influence, we've lost our purpose. That's why here we're going to stand for the gospel. We're never going to dilute or pollute or water down the message of Christ. We're not going to be afraid of the opinion of men. God helping us. Amen? Amen, Pastor Jeff. All right. Then Jesus compares the church to light. You're the light of the world, not just salt of the earth, the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. Now, I want you to notice something, that both salt and light when Jesus mentions them, he, he, he mentions them as not functioning the way they were supposed to be. He juxtaposes what they should be with what they're not or with what they're in danger of not doing. The salt loses its seasoning, and the light is placed under a table where you can't see it. So he's, he's telling us, Here's what I don't want to happen. As salt, I don't want you to lose your saltiness. And as light, I don't want you to be hidden. I want, let let the salt be the salt. And let the light be light. And so when it comes to the light, he says, you need to be on a hilltop. The most conspicuous place you can find. That's where you need to get 
and shine into the dark. Let your light so shine. The meaning there is shine in such a way that they that men see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So how does the light shine? The way the church shines, the light of Christ, is by what we do in his name, the works we do in his name that they all see. Because they don't see Jesus. They don't see God. They don't know God. So you can talk about the Lord all day long. They don't get it. Now, I'm not talking about not sharing the gospel, but they don't understand Christians speak. They, they don't know the God we've come to know through Christ. But what they do understand is when I see you doing good works in his name, works of charity, helping the poor, um, helping those that can't help themselves. When I see you doing with my eyes, because that's what lost eyes see. They see your walk that backs up your talk. So they see the good works, tangible things that they can put their finger on and say, oh, yeah, okay, they, they fed the hungry. You know, Jesus said, I was in prison, you visited me. I was sick, you came to see me. I was hungry, you fed me. Thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was in a really bad place. And you did something tangible that helped them. I see that. And I note that. And Jesus said, it makes them look up. That they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. So they look up when they see us do good works. Amen? Let your light shine in such a way, not to trumpet your good works in an arrogant way, but that they may see it and say, this is the change Jesus brought into my life. Amen? He did this, and this is why I'm doing this, because he changed me. Amen? So everybody say with me, we're salt to preserve, and we're light to shine. Now, those two things are identifiers, identity markers. That's who we are. That's who I am. That's who you are in Christ. You are. Peter, you are a chosen generation. You are. You are a royal priesthood. You are. You are a called out people. You are called to show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the New Testament is full of you are's, and I love them because they identify me. Amen? Now, next, Jesus is going to deal with the law. He says, don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, I suspect that the reason he said you, you think I came to destroy the law? Because that was, that, that was sort of the scuttlebutt going around about him in the very beginning. Oh, he's come to destroy the law and do away with the prophets. This was going around. So Jesus says, don't think that. Because I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. I came to fulfill them. And so what was the law? Well, the law was the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, called the Pentateuch. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That comprised the law. All right? Everybody say the law. And Jesus told John the Baptist, for instance, it is incumbent upon us to fulfill all righteousness. So I came to fulfill the righteous expectations and demands of the law. I came to fulfill it. So he didn't take respect away from the Old Testament. He didn't, he didn't come to say the, no, the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. He says, I came to fulfill all the righteousness required of it so that I can save mankind. So that was the law, first five books. And the prophets, you know the prophets, simply the prophets we read in our Bible. The, the uh, great prophets, the, the, the minor prophets, the major prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Obadiah, so on and so forth. He said, I didn't come to do away with them, but I'm fulfilling what they predicted. I'm fulfilling what they said. He didn't come to throw them down. He didn't come to replace them with something new. Now we're going to see that Jesus, here's what Jesus did with the law. He added depth and meaning to the law that Moses didn't give us. And we're going to see that tonight when we look at not murdering. So Jesus is going to tackle in the Sermon on the Mount many of the commandments given in the law. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't swear by God, don't take his name in vain. He's going to show us how uh, they are heart issues that must be dealt with. And if you deal with the heart issue, you won't break the law. You got to deal with the heart. So Jesus is going to add three dimensions to a one-dimensional commandment. Moses just said, don't do it. Jesus taught us how to prepare our hearts and deal with our hearts so that we won't do it. Moses just said, don't kill somebody. Don't take God's name in vain. So it was all action. But Jesus went further and deeper into our hearts. And he said, if you deal with your heart, then you're not going to do it. you got to deal with your heart. Jesus believed that the entire Old Testament, every jot and tittle, was the God-breathed Word. We've got to understand this, folks. How much of the Bible is the Word of God in your hand? All of it. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture. How much of it? All of it. In the original manuscripts, we deal with translations uh, another time, but in the original manuscripts, every single punctuation mark was God-breathed. And God don't make language mistakes. Right? So Jesus fully, he said, not one jot or tittle. You, you think I came to do away with the law? I'm telling you, not one bit of it is ever going to pass away till everything in it is fulfilled. Now, he goes on to rebuke any teacher of the law. They would divide the commandments into greater and lesser uh, commandments or categories. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, I'm going to tell you why he said it, the Pharisees. We know it was the Pharisees because they were in the habit of dividing the precepts of the law into lesser and greater categories, teaching that those who violated the lesser categories uh, were guilty of a trivial offense, and those that broke the more major ones were guilty of a major offense. Here's what Jesus is saying. Whether it seems major or minor, all of the word of God is the word of God and should be honored and obeyed. There is no lesser word or greater word. They're all on the same plane. It's all the word of God. He teaches that in his kingdom, if you make a distinction and say, now don't worry about this one, because this one's a lesser commandment. You need to be really worried about this one. He says, you're going to be least. You have just demoted yourself. So when I preach the word of God, I preach it as the word of God. When I stand up here, if I can be honest with you, there's a part of me that trembles because I'm imparting God's word, not Jeff's word or man's word. It's God's word. And I want to be real sure as much as lies within me, I'm rightly dividing the word of truth because the teacher, James said, is going to receive more stripes, stricter judgment than he who does not teach. So I know when I face the Lord, I'm going to hear about where I missed it and where I hit it. And so I want not many misses and a lot of good hits, right? So amen. So it's all the word of God, and it should be treated as such. Now, in verse 20, Jesus talks about phony and genuine righteousness. I want you to listen to this. I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you are not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, what's he talking about? What's the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? Here it is in one word, works. My works. The scribes and the Pharisees believed that you got into heaven by how well you obeyed by your works, by how closely you towed the line and how many biblical hoops you jumped through. The more the better, because God is going to judge you on your performance and not grace. I was listening to a very popular Jewish radio host a couple of weeks ago, just a while back. I could say his name. I'm not going to say his name. You would know his name immediately. Jewish radio host. And he says a lot of good things. I I like him. He says a lot of good things. But as a Jew, he has rejected Christ. And he has come right out and said, I reject Christ. I don't believe that Jesus was the Old Testament predicted Christ. He's come right out and said it. Well, that's when I knew. I can listen to him on conservative politics, but I cannot listen to him theologically. Because you tell me Jesus was not the one, I'm out. Right? So here's the thing. Somebody called in, and it was a Christian, and he and he went off on, uh, he went into grace. We're saved by grace through faith, and 
not of works. And this Jewish radio host said, I am a firm believer in works. I'm quoting him. He said, I believe in works. I believe I will get into heaven by my works. I believe God pays attention to our works. And if our works please him and are according to Old Testament law, we will get in. Now, let me tell you, he's going to be sorely disappointed because God said, your righteousness, your good works to me are as filthy rags. We are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, right? So the Apostle Paul put it this way, no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. You see it up there? No one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. Try it. Try keeping the Ten Commandments for one week without breaking one of them. I challenge you. Because right when you kept nine of them, you break one. Right when you get that one right, you break another one. You won't make it a week without breaking one of the Ten Commandments. You will not. All you got to do is get in rush hour traffic. And your Ten Commandments are gone. You can't do it. And James tells us, uh, he said, If you break one, you've broken them all. We cannot, we will never get into heaven on our own merit. Christianity is not a meritocracy. It is grace, grace, and only grace. When I meet God through Jesus, I'm not going to be able to say, thank you, Lord, that 95% of my being here is because of Jesus and 5% because I was a good boy. No, no, no. It'll be all praise to him, all glory to him, casting our crowns at his feet because we don't get into heaven by obeying the law. The scripture says it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Galatians 3.11. Now, starting with verse 21, Jesus is going to take one of the commandments and he's going to deal with it. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. And he's going to give it, we're going to note, he's going to give it breadth and width and height and depth that Moses didn't give it. Because Moses just said, don't kill somebody. Okay? But Jesus said, don't let your heart get to where you want to kill somebody. Watch this. If you kill somebody unjustly, we get this. We're going to be arrested and go to jail. And either a long, long time in prison or even get death, depending on the heinousness of the crime. But here's what Jesus says in verse 22. He's going to take Moses' one-dimensional commandment, and he's going to broaden it. I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, let's unpack this. I feel that the judgment, and pay close attention, attention to those last words, the judgment. I feel that the judgment refers to the judgment of God. First, this person is dealing with their anger between them and God. 
Have you ever noticed that if you get angry at somebody and you don't forgive them for a period of time as a believer, you start hearing from God in your heart? Get the halos off the top of your heads. Amen? Am I talking to human beings? Have you ever noticed? It's not just anger, lust, uh, gossip, anything that is wrong. Have you noticed that if you don't deal with it, God will come knocking and, and convict you and say, we got to deal with this, right? But now when it comes to anger, I believe the, the judgment you're in danger of is God dealing with you because he's keenly aware of our internal emotions, our state of mind, and our spiritual condition. He knows where we are. He's got a thermometer to our spiritual temperature at all times. Okay? And when we walk in anger, the Heavenly Father is going to take note of it, and he's going to begin dealing with us because Jesus is going to show us if we don't deal with it, there's a very bad progression. Okay? Nobody understood human nature like Jesus. Nobody understood you and me like Jesus. The Bible says he knew what was in all men. He knew what was in all men. He's never surprised it was in you, you or me. Okay? So he begins convicting our heart and saying, this anger, you can't leave it here. You're going to have to forgive. I've told you you got to forgive. Forgive one another as I have forgiven you. When you are praying to the Lord, the Lord's prayer, forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me. We live in a very vitriolic, toxic, angry culture. Everybody is mad and offended and leave me in my rights alone. I've got my rights. I, got, I can do that. Leave me alone. Don't tell me what to do. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. How dare you pull me over and give me a ticket when I was speeding like crazy? We're angry. It's just an angry culture. Have you noticed that? It's toxic out there. Jesus said, if you don't deal with the anger in your heart, it's going to progress. And so anger is the evil spawn of murder. That's what Jesus is teaching here. God is going to convict our hearts. You've got to forgive because if you don't forgive, bad things are going to happen in your heart. Matthew 15, 19, Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts. And the very next word, murder. Where's murder come from? The heart. That's where it comes from. Our prisons are full of people who, if they had dealt with their anger, they wouldn't be there. Jesus said murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. The good news is if we recognize this and allow God to deal with our heart, it'll keep us from the act. That's the good news. If we allow God to deal with our heart, and the more I read the teachings of Jesus, the more I'm aware he was 
interested, very interested, very focused on your heart and mine, our heart condition. Do you have heart trouble? Is your heart stable? Are you stable spiritually or do you have heart trouble, anger, lust, fear, greed, immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, running other people down? It all begins in the heart. The heart spawns these things. So the idea here is of anger not dealt with. That's the idea. Anger that is left to simmer. Anger that is coddled and fed. All right? Anger that is coddled and fed. So we think of Paul's admonition. Don't let the sun set on your anger. I remember vividly one time I was in Florida with our family, and this story came out that was terrible. But these uh, little kids had started on their way to school or somewhere where they played. One day they spotted a little baby alligator, and they started feeding it. Every time they went by, they fed it. And they fed it, and they fed it, and they grew, and it grew. And one day they're walking by, and when they went to feed it, it lunged. And it grabbed one of them and took them under. And that was it. I don't like those kind of metaphorical illustrations, but here's the thing. There are certain things, if you feed them in your heart, they're going to grow and devour you. Okay? And in our case here, it's anger. That's a gator you can't afford to feed. Nobody is worth you letting anger grow in you till you've got a monster on the inside. I'm not going to let anybody make me hate them. I will not let anybody make me hate them. No way. By God's grace, I'm going to walk in forgiveness because I know the price you pay if you don't. Anger that is coddled and fed will grow. So you don't let the sun set on your anger. Then Jesus shows a further progression downward if anger is not handled. He says, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Now, not the judgment, but in danger of the council. You see, there's a progression. The judgment is between you and God. But the council was the Sanhedrin, and it was the high court of the land. And Jesus is saying, if you don't deal with the anger and it breaks out into some kind of a physical action, you're, you're in danger of going in front of the Sanhedrin, the court, with legal issues. The Sanhedrin dealt with blasphemy, insurrection, high crimes like that. But Jesus names them, and he says, if you don't deal with that anger, let God deal with it and forgive, then you're in danger of going to the Sanhedrin. The Bible asks a question, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? 
It's a rhetorical question, both of them. The answer is, of course, no. No way you can walk on red-hot coals and not be scorched in your feet. Likewise, you can't take anger into your bosom and have it not rise up and burn you. The angry man is now calling the object of his scorn Raka. So now the anger is progressing, and that means bluntly stupid idiot. It comes from the Greek word from which we get moron. Now, now you're, you're, you're name-calling. At first, you, you were angry, and it was between you and God. But now it hadn't been dealt with, so now it's progressing. And now this person who Jesus said is your brother, you're no longer seeing him as brother, but now you're name-calling, and anger is transforming the way you see them. And you're saying, Raka, you empty-headed, stupid, idiot, moron. (laughs) That's what it means. So what is it? It's a word of contempt. That's what it is. We recall the Apostle John saying, anyone who hates another brother or sister or any human being is a murderer where? At heart. So notice, murder begins here. And it ends up going into action if you don't deal with it. So anger, unchecked, has progressed to contemptuous name-calling. This happens in homes, happens in businesses, happens with friendships. It happens if you don't deal with the emotion of anger. It's going to progress the gator is going to grow. But there's one more step. Whoever says, you fool, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. The idea here, all pretense and self-control are now gone. At first, you know, we're kind of saying, you know, you stupid idiot. Now you're screaming. Now you're yelling. Now, all desire to disguise it or put it under some kind of a Christian mask is gone. Because now, you're just letting it all go. And Jesus said, at this point, you're one hair's breadth away from murder. I know these are sobering words, but Jesus understands us. Anger leading to murder is is often found in people whose ultimate destiny is hell. Jesus said, you're in danger now. First the judgment, then the Sanhedrin, now eternal damnation. There's a progression. Now, whether he's speaking metaphorically or literally, I know either one I don't want, right? So, in summary, what do we get out of this tonight? Our Lord's message is to deal with the heart before sinful actions follow. That's our Lord's message. And I can also say that this, this of course, is true of anything 
lust, fear, greed, um, you name it. If we don't deal with the heart, that's why I believe in getting into the Word of God every single day because the Word of God uh, prunes away from my heart what should not be there. It convicts me, and I'm able to bring things to God that I need to get out because His Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, and it exposes what's in there that doesn't need to be there and helps me to say, Dear God, help me with my heart. I don't want this in my heart. Amen? So let's stand together, can we? How many of you are looking forward to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount? Amen. Oh, it's really, really good stuff. You know, I I love watching the ID channel. I like the ID channel. You might think I'm lost watching the ID channel. But I like watching the way crimes are committed and the way sometimes it is almost a miracle of God the way they find them and 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 take care of it. And I really probably could have been an investigator if I hadn't gotten saved and called to preach because I think it's cool. I love forensics, that kind of thing. But now, the thing about it is, how many times have I watched somebody commit a murder and I see this whole progression happen in their life that Jesus talked about here? that led up to the murder. And I go, wow, if they had only listened to Jesus. Let's lift our hands to the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your power, your blessing. Can we say together, Lord, I give you my heart. It is desperately wicked. It is deceitful if it's not submitted to the Spirit of God. Lord, keep my heart. Help me to keep it with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. Help me, Lord, to keep a heart that is spiritually healthy, Lord, I give you any anger in my heart, any unforgiveness, any grudge. And I choose tonight to forgive my offender so that I can walk free. Help me, Lord, to never feed the gator. In Jesus' name, amen.